The scripture reading for this evening is from the book of Luke, chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. When some were speaking about the temple and how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, As for these things that you see, the day will come when that one stone will be left upon another, all will be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, Beware that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near, but do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls." The word of the Lord. I worry about the terrible, terrifying disastrous end of life as we know it, sometimes. People wrecking up the world, it doesn't really take a lot of imagination, really. I mean, you drill a gaping hole through the skin into the heart of the earth, and the wound bleeds blackness, vomits more and more blackness, and the blackness covers the wings of the and you can't even take your boat out to fish because the fish are dead and the water is toxic? That just happened. Remotely controlled robots made for killing and climate change and perpetual soul-sucking greed. It's not hard to imagine that before long, cockroaches and coyotes and very, very rich people will be all that survive or a father and a son, and they have to protect themselves from people who want to eat them because there's nobody that has any food or warmth or hope and nothing's growing, and they find a can of Coke in an old pop machine in a burned-out gas station, and it makes them happy. Post-apocalyptic literature. It's the hottest thing in juvenile fiction. There are scads of dystopian novels. The kids love them. Hunger games, earthquakes, pestilence, famines, and war. 
It's a little bit hard to believe that apocalyptic literature was a big thing 2,000 years ago. I mean, they hadn't even heard of robots or nuclear fission. Their weapons were swords. There was no such thing as offshore drilling. There were no endangered species. What were they thinking? Imagining an imminent, disastrous end. The earth was nubile. It was barely populated. They had no idea how much humans would end up threatening life on the planet. Or I don't know, maybe it's always been obvious. They hadn't seen the darker side of human enterprise. Experienced it, I guess. The Roman Empire was brutal, and whatever damage you could do with a sword, they pretty much played that out. And gladiators, and corrupt emperors, and lions in the Colosseum, ripping people up, beheadings, crucifixions. This text sounds like it's a prediction, but it's also history. Luke was written after the Roman armies had totally destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, wiping out any trace of resistance to their power, and it was horribly traumatic for everybody. Horribly. Josephus is a historian who writes about this time, and he says the city was filled with dead bodies still, lying unburied, and those of men mixed with infants all dead and scattered about together, while the dread of more barbaric possibilities threatened everywhere. And so this is kind of fresh on people's minds. So I guess they might have been feeling a little post-apocalyptic, a little anxious maybe, I think tragedy has a way of generating that. Apocalyptic thinking breeds fear. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant to be up to here, making people anxious. It seems like from most of what I read, it seems like that's not really his goal. It seems quite the opposite. Don't be anxious about tomorrow is kind of a big theme for him. All throughout Luke, Jesus is bringing peace. Go in peace. My peace be with you. The angels say to the shepherds when he's born, he came to bring peace on earth. Don't be anxious. Fear not. He says stuff like that quite a lot. Then at one point he does ask the question, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? Well, I mean, from everything I've read and what you said before, yes. But he's like, no, I didn't. In this passage, it's like, peace, there will be war and tumults, he says. Which seems accurate, I guess. Wars, for sure, like constantly. A tumult, am I saying it right, even? I had a feeling I knew what it was when I looked it up. It's a disorderly commotion or disturbance, tempestuous acts, an agitation of the mind or emotions. Yeah, tumults. How many tumults do you have a day? I don't know what it's like for most people, but I might be different, but I'd say I have three tumults a day. <laughs> Hardly ever zero. I can't remember a day when I had zero tumults. <laughs> Jesus, when asked about peace, was upfront about it. You won't have peace, war, and tumults. But don't be terrified, he says. Imagining the future is weird. I mean, I'm not sure how not to do it. But it is a bit pointless. It doesn't exist, you know. I mean, really. Think of the future like the next moment. 
before you're even done forming the thought, the moment's already passed. I mean, I don't really know how to say it. It could freak you out if you become hyper-conscious of it, or maybe get your Buddha going on. But at some level, really, there is no future. It doesn't exist. There's only now, which passes pretty quickly, too. By the time you say it, it's gone. Could kind of make you want to have a drink. Or relax. I mean, you can try to plan for 20 years from now, and your mom and dad, and financial advisors, and your insurance company, and responsible people of all varieties will tell you that you must. But the Christian message, the people writing these books, were actually of a sort of different mind. You hear it all the time in Paul. He's like, I mean people. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as they had none. All those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who buy as if they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as if they had no dealings with it. The form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. He says, be free from anxiety. I think that's the point. And maybe Paul didn't get everything quite right. Maybe he just really thought that the end was coming soon. But maybe there was something he was getting from the gospel he heard from Jesus that was profoundly, like deeply true, like undeniably, like scientifically, although I hate to say that word, but physically true and freeing. Don't live for tomorrow. Don't be afraid. Be very, very present, alive, where you are, while you are, which might not be that long. What do you do with a consciousness that allows you to worry, to be anxious about what comes next? Don't we have to do something with that? People have made a whole apparently fairly effective religion around trying to get people to worry about heaven or hell, to be motivated by a sort of fear of what comes next. But Jesus seems so clear, I think, and consistent on this point. Don't be afraid. Peace or tumult, apocalyptic scenarios, don't be anxious about tomorrow. God is with you among us, like actively creating, making love seems like the best word for it, but somehow it misses the oomph of how much Jesus thinks we can trust God. Of course it seems absurd, but it's what Jesus says will help us. The Old Testament text for tonight is this Isaiah passage which is kind of nice to read alongside Luke's apocalyptic scenario. And Isaiah God says, I'm creating everything anew. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I'm creating. I'm creating Jerusalem as a joy, people as a delight. It's like God's creating, bringing into being these joyful and delightful beings and places. Isaiah writes of this possibility where there is no futility. And the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. I mean, that seems a little bit silly. 
But in this passage, it's like there's this very active, but maybe slow and, I don't know, quiet lover that is seen to something quite enormous that really might even reach to the heart of the earth. Maybe it's a long process and there are tumults like mad in the creating, broken hearts and gaping wounds. It isn't pie in the sky that God's creating. Thank God. Whoever came up with that expression, I hate it. I suppose it's meant to sound stupid, and it really does. Pie in the sky, some castle in the clouds to look forward to. The other night, Miles came home from play practice, and he came up to our, be- our bedroom where Olivia and I were reading. And I was just so happy to have both my kids laying on my bed wanting to talk to me. And then Olivia said, is it dessert night? And we couldn't really remember. But then Miles said he wished he had pumpkin pie. And then we started thinking about different kinds of pie, and it sounded so good. And Miles said, you know what? Like something mad could happen. We have a French silk pie in the freezer. And it seemed impossible and wonderful, and he was right. (laughs) We bought it from one of those school fundraisers. And so we all went downstairs with great delight and hope for the future. And we got it out of the freezer, and we took the plastic off. And it seemed a little odd that it was frozen, but not really frozen. Like they put something in it to keep it that way, like Cool Whip is. But we were still full of optimism and expectation of fulfillment. And so we cut it to pieces and we put it on our plate, still hopeful. And the first bite, okay. The second bite, I think we were all aware overwhelmed with sadness. (laughs) I don't think it was chocolate. It was like corn syrup whipped into some sort of frenzy and dyed brown, pumped with preservatives, and I don't know what leaves your mouth feeling like it's coated with toxins. It was extremely unsatisfying. It was the opposite of satisfying. Who would ever want some sweet corn syrupy hereafter? Saccharine hope, cheery optimism, empty sweetness, salvation without suffering. There isn't really a lot of that in our sacred texts. Jesus says there will be wars and there will be tumults. There will be truly terrible things, but don't be terrified. Is that like a koan, like a riddle or a puzzle, or is that like a pat on the back from a friend when things are tough? Or is it the reflection of some very deep truth that is beyond what we quite have access to? The God who is incarnate in the world, the God who's broken and who suffers, is trying to help us know something. You don't need to be afraid. Of course you probably are. But he seems sort of to desperately want us to believe him on this. 
about God never ceasing to bring things into being, and not just things into being, but what we need and what we deeply desire, and not just what we need and desire, but something that includes everything. But this part kind of makes me not believe him. He says you're going to suffer, but by your endurance, you will gain your souls, your life, your aliveness. Endurance. I have a hard time hearing that and not thinking about trucks or tires or the Marines or Gatorade commercials. Like, endurance means somehow making yourself strong and hard, like abs and biceps and weightlifting and running around the track and high-fiving. But I kind of don't think that that's what Jesus meant. He's not actually a tough guy. Endurance that won't flinch in the face of suffering, I don't think that's it. He kind of flinches in the face of suffering. He cries from the cross in absolute desolation. My God, why have you forsaken me? He a lot, but not like a soldier. Like someone that had a heart that could break. So I don't think he means to get strong and hard. How do you endure tumults and wars and climate change and species becoming extinct and droves, a sort of soft heart, a heart that breaks kind of easily, like some sort of endurance that involves a sort of softness, I think do not fear and endurance, if you sort of put it into the context of all the stories surrounding it, it isn't like being strong, necessarily. It's like trusting. While I was reading for this, I read in somebody's thoughts on the lectionary passages tonight that what Christians have, or what Christ gives us, is indestructible hope. And I thought that sounded good. But then I thought about plastic and preservative-laden food. And it seems like indestructible anything hardly sounds good. And maybe what we need, love and hope, something delicious to eat, doesn't somehow exist in the realm of indestructible. Isn't in the same column or something. Because life and vulnerability are somehow inextricable. And it's how love is possible, but not afraid. Maybe, and I have my doubts, but maybe we aren't actually capable of exterminating creation or God's creativity. And maybe there are no other forces that are capable of putting it into it. God is so fertile or something birthing and rebirthing and resurrecting life and so patient but eager to have us participate. However we can make something, feed somebody, love someone, and if all you can find is something a little bit lovely in a desolate place, then drink it up. 